This is Undisciplined. I'm Ellis Julin. Today we're talking toads, the only amphibian that people want to kiss even less than frogs. And while kissing a toad won't turn you into a prince, tracking toads for several years just might teach you a whole lot about how animals choose habitats. And for the record, we do not recommend you go around putting your lips on any amphibians. Dr. Gabriel Burreal is a postdoctoral research associate in quantitative ecology at the Colorado Natural Heritage Program at Colorado State University. Gabe spent five years tagging and tracking toads as they moved across breeding ponds in the Wind River Range of Wyoming. In addition to discovering that toads smell like roasted peanuts, Gabe also learned that these populations of boreal toads provide an important window into how animals alter their behavior in response to change. Gabe studies the connections between individual and population-level ecological processes. Specifically, he studies how individual toads' movement and habitat choices scale up to influence population growth and demographic rates. His research uniquely documents toads altering their behavior to cope with chytrid fungus in a concept referred to as behavioral fever. Gabe, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Alice. It is completely and totally my pleasure to speak with you today. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you about all things (laughs) toad. Um, So let's start out talking about about boreal toads. Um, Tell me a little bit about them and the populations you've studied. Yeah. um, Well, I mean, for anyone who has not spent much time around boreal toads, they are just the most darling creatures and they're just packed with a ton of personality. Now, boreal toads are a subspecies of the Western toad and they were once widespread and common throughout much of Western North America. But unfortunately, like many other amphibian species around the world, they really have declined precipitously over the past few decades. And so we were lucky enough to be able to study several of these boreal toad populations in the mountains of western Wyoming, namely the Wind River Range and the Wyoming Range, uh, both of which are just beautiful landscapes. And we were so fortunate to be able to have worked in such special places. Yeah, that's great. So um, tell me a little bit more about kind of the declines that boreal toads are facing. What are some of the the threats that are affecting their populations and what's what's kind of causing these declines? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, like many amphibian species across the globe, boreal toads are threatened by things like habitat loss, habitat alteration, pollution, climate change particularly changes to precipitation regimes that end up affecting the availability of water resources on the landscape. But perhaps no threat is bigger than disease, and specifically chytridiomycosis, which is a skin disease that is caused by the amphibian chytrid fungus. Wow, that's so interesting. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about this fungus and, and how it's affecting these toads? Yeah, so so there's the uh, a specific chytrid fungus called Bacchicochytrium dendrobatidis, or BD, which now is a globally occurring fungal pathogen. It infects the skin of amphibians, and it's just wiping amphibian populations out all across the world. There's there's a lot of debate amongst scientists on the numbers, but I think it's safe to say that the chytrid fungus is affecting hundreds of amphibian species and is potentially linked to the extinction of around 100 amphibian species. So chytrid fungus has, it's actually been termed the worst infectious disease ever recorded in terms of the number of species impacted and its propensity to drive them to extinction. Wow. I'm curious how the fungus is kind of affecting the toads. Is it growing? You were kind of mentioned it affecting their skin layer. Does the fungus grow on them? Can you kind of explain that a little more for us? Sure. Yeah. So 
it is a skin disease. It infects the keratin in the skin of amphibians. And the, the skin of amphibians is a very important organ um, for uh, osmoregulation, thermoregulation. It, it allows electrolytes to sort of penetrate the skin and whatnot. But I guess what happens is chytrid infects the keratin in the skin of amphibians. It sort of hardens the skin. And what that does is sort of um, interferes with the electrolyte balance in the amphibian body. And ultimately, that throws off the sodium ion channels in the heart and can lead to cardiac arrest. Wow. Okay. So you, in your research, have documented um, some examples of this concept called behavioral fever in the wild, where an individual infected with chytrid has changed their behavior to deal with this infection. So let's talk about that. Oh, sure. Yeah, we... So we were tracking the movements and habitat use of boreal toads um, using radio telemetry. So each toad was outfitted with, with this belt that secured a little radio transmitter to their waist. And, and, you know, we typically found toads hunkered under riparian willows or in small mammal burrows, these cool, moist, sheltered habitats. But occasionally we would see toads out in the open basking in the sun. And that's a natural behavior, but they really weren't out there all that often. So we thought maybe toads tended to move into these warmer, drier, more open habitats when they were infected with the chytrid fungus. Because the chytrid fungus, like a typical fungus, it really thrives in cool, moist, shelter conditions and doesn't grow very well in warm, dry conditions. So we tested the skin of these toads to determine whether individuals were infected with chytrid and then compared their habitat use both before and after being infected. And what we found is that when infected with the chytrid fungus, individuals moved from these moist-covered habitats to warmer, more open areas where they were able to elevate their body temperature and in some cases clear the infection or rid themselves of the infection. Now, it's, it's sort of unclear whether increasing body temperature when infected by actively selecting these warmer habitats, which is the phenomenon called behavioral fever, whether increasing that body temperature helps to improve immunity of the toad or if it helped kill the fungus by exceeding the thermal limit for growth of the fungus or both. Um, but either way, it's a really interesting strategy for behaviorally defending against disease. The research on behavioral fever kind of suggests that disease influences habitat selection and space use. And I'm interested in the implications of that from a wildlife management or even a general conservation standpoint. What are your thoughts on that? I think in some cases we need to consider that wild animals may require different habitat resources when they are infected with a disease versus when they're uninfected. So maintaining that environmental, environmental heterogeneity, particularly with respect to temperature, moisture, and cover, will be critical for boreal toads challenged with infection from chytrid. And furthermore, I think retaining adjacency between these different habitats will help facilitate behavioral defenses against disease because the cost of movement between that cool, moist, sheltered habitat and the warm, dry, open habitat would be reduced because of that proximity. Yeah, I think more and more in the, in the world of wildlife conservation, we're recognizing the importance of habitat connectivity. Um, but it's not something you often think about with toads, given kind of how small they are and the amount of distance they're really able to travel. I'm curious if this has been seen, this, this behavioral fever um, has been observed in other organisms. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of ectotherms, for, for example, several insect species, 
tend to seek out warmer microclimates when they're infected with disease in order to raise their body temperature. So, so they're switching habitats to induce a behavioral fever in order to boost their immunity. Now, most evidence of these behaviors come from laboratory studies. So it was neat that we were able to document an example of this defensive behavior in, in a wild population. And further, you know, recent advances in the study of wildlife disease dynamics are finding more and more that some animals select specific habitat conditions or resources to defend against disease. For instance, animals from chimpanzees to some caterpillars have been observed self-medicating by selecting and ingesting or, or topically applying plants, soils, insects, even psychoactive drugs to prevent or reduce the harmful effects of pathogens or toxins. And so managing for, for these critical resources, whether they be specific habitat conditions or medical substances, will be important for the conservation of wild animals that, that are challenged by these various diseases. Do you have any fun anecdotes of toads traveling far distances or moving in kind of crazy ways that you hadn't expected? I know uh, several years ago, the Division of Wildlife here in Utah documented a boreal toad traveling, I think it was something like 20 miles, a three-legged toad that somehow moved all across this mountain range. Have you seen anything like that or how far have your has your furthest toad gone? Yeah, that that was awesome. I've seen that the video of the three-legged toad in Utah. We didn't observe toads moving quite that far. I mean, that's just remarkable. But when you're radio tracking toads, it, it is very surprising. I mean, we we had toads jumping ridges, you know, sort of. And the cool thing about them is they tend to stay in one spot for a while. And then the, the times when they move great distances seems to be over a very short period of time. So they just make these jumps. And it's it's speculated that those jumps are are probably made at night during during sort of warm, humid nights. Um, but certainly we had them traveling miles. And when you're radio tracking them, you're like, okay, we're back where they were before. Now we can't get a signal. So you sort of go climb trees, go on top of a mountain. You're like, oh my gosh, they're way over there. So we certainly had them travel miles. Um, it, it tended to be sort of the larger females that would travel those longer distances. But yeah, they're just... Their mobility is, is pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I think anyone who's seen a toad or even a frog kind of awkwardly hopping around, it's hard to imagine them traveling those massive distances, but it's it's cool to think about, especially three-legged ones, but even the four-legged ones. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder if they like keep that frown on their face the whole time they're moving. <laughs> yeah, they just look really grouchy. <laughs> um, I also was thinking it'd be fun if we could have an anecdote about how toads smell like roasted peanuts? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are no conclusions that we have based on toads smelling like peanuts, but it's not just me. I had other people observing the same thing, and it's not every toad. It's like every other or every couple toads smells very strong of like earthy peanuts. And I don't know if it's their microbiome. Uh, it probably has to do with their microbiome, but it, it is a very distinct peanut smell that potentially honestly has some sort of research potential uh, moving forward, especially if it does have something to do with our microbiome. And, and I, it's just a little bit bizarre, and I'm not exactly sure how to explain that, that scent that they give up. <laughs> yeah, I'm picturing you crouched down in the mud and muck of a, of a, a breeding pond, 
picking up a toad and sniffing it in the middle of the night during your sampling. And it's a, it's a good visual. <laughs> um, okay, awesome. So getting back to my kind of preset questions. Um, another component of your research has also documented toads moving from what you've defined kind of low to high quality breeding habitat, um, especially after beaver dams have blown out. So let's talk a little bit about kind of what low and high quality habitat looks like for these toads and then how beaver ponds and beaver dams kind of influence that. Yeah, yeah. So at our study sites, boreal toads and some other amphibians bred almost exclusively inactive or abandoned beaver ponds. Um, But those wetlands or ponds created by beaver are not permanent fixtures on the landscape. You know, beaver beaver dams collapse, uh, particularly when there's high snowmelt runoff or extreme flooding in the spring. Now, we were able to document that after dams collapse and ponds drain, that some boreal toads at our study sites were able to leave these areas and colonize other beaver ponds that were suitable for reproduction. But that really assumes that beaver ponds are available on the landscape and within the reach of colonization by by a boreal toad that is in search of viable breeding habitat. So really, I'd say doing our best to protect resident beavers from trapping and maintaining abandoned ponds could help increase the quality and quantity of breeding habitat available to amphibians and support their long-term persistence in these environments by providing them with the resources that they use for reproduction. Yeah, that's so interesting to think about. I feel like we're starting to really recognize this crucial role of beavers as ecosystem engineers. And um, I actually recently just read a study about how beaver dam complexes and, and beaver ponds help prevent wildfires. So lots of important implications for managing our habitats in the West. Good for fire mitigation, good for toads. Yeah, all sorts of important things that beavers do. So how did the individual's or the individual toads you were tracking kind of move into different areas after their breeding ponds had been drastically altered? And did you have areas where the toads were moving um, and they maybe didn't have another really suitable habitat available within that kind of stream complex? Did you see big movements happening, lots of changes? And um, yeah, what was kind of observed with that? Yeah, that's a great point. So After beaver dams collapsed and ponds drained, like we were discussing, some individuals were able to move away from those locations and find alternate beaver ponds that supported successful reproduction. But many of them didn't leave those degraded breeding sites. You know, we we observed a lot of toads returning to these poor quality areas that that used to be ponds, and, and they were laying egg clutches there, only to have those egg clutches dry up shortly after they were deposited. And so it seems that some individuals have a stronger site fidelity to breeding ponds than others. And so I think that makes for for an intriguing line of future inquiry into why some individuals are basically stubborn and remain in poor quality habitat and why others are adventurous and willing to take risks. And for relatively long-lived species, such as the boreal toad, at what point does an individual that didn't take risks begin to explore the environment and disperse to other locations? And what are some of the sensory mechanisms that play into toad decision-making and that ability to navigate in their environment? And yeah, I think those are all areas that are just ripe for future research. 
do toads typically return in their first few years of breeding? And do they typically return to the ponds that they kind of hatched in? And is there like a lot of site fidelity from from that kind of neonatal site? Or is it some other mechanism that's driving them to return to the same pond year after year? I think without necessarily having strong data, um, I think that's the going thought is that there is a certain level of, let's call it natal filipatry. So returning to that site that you were born in boreal toads. Uh, however, I think that's also an area that's right for research. It's really hard to follow a metamorphic toad until adulthood and see where they actually went back to. I think the idea is that they do come back to the same sites, but but I think that that sort of how how they are linked to that site or whether that site's sort of ingrained and the sensory sensory mechanisms that allow them to navigate back to that site is sort of a frontier of research. Yeah, I would imagine that just from a logistical standpoint, it would be very challenging to track a metamorphic toad, not only because of their size and their low survival rate, but how would you attach some sort of a transmitter? Maybe an RFID? Maybe you can figure that out and you can be the person who piloted metamorphic toad trackers. Yeah, I I think people want to do that. And I think technology will probably get us there. Like you said, I mean, you could batch mark they probably do have tags that are that small. You could do like genetic work, but but like you said, I think it's you know it's really like a low survival rate. If you have thousands and thousands of metamorphs, like how many are going to come back as adults? You have to wait a couple of years, and then you have to assume that they come back to that site. It's tough. Let's talk about why toads. How did you get into this work and and become the boreal toad guy that you are now known as? <laughs> Oh, well, I, I really owe that to to the professor who I conducted research with when I was an undergraduate, uh, Dr. John Horanitz at Bloomsburg University in Pennsylvania, where along with my fellow undergrads, Laurel Downs and Corey Bauer, we, we were able to study the life history trait evolution of Fowler's toads on barrier islands along the, along the coast of Virginia and, and the adjacent mainland. And through that work, I, I really grew to love toads and, and appreciate their demeanor and their place in the ecosystem. So I do love toads, but, but I'm really more interested in, in applied conservation biology and tackling projects where a species or a population is challenged by disease or environmental change and using ecological science to develop effective strategies for, for conservation and management. And so that's why I really loved um, about working with the boreal toads in Wyoming was that they were challenged with disease and habitat change. And I was, I was just really fortunate to study that so intimately for my dissertation research. And hopefully we learned some things that will help manage and conserve those populations. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's, it's interesting. Toads are one of those kind of, I think herpetofauna in general are one, one of those more underrepresented taxa taxonomic groups in the world of wildlife biology. Um, So it's cool that you're studying them and kind of asking these sorts of questions. And so now what is, what does your next thing look like? Are you, are you sticking with toads? Are you going somewhere else? Um, We've kind of talked a little bit about what you'd like to see kind of done as the next steps with these toads, but I know you're um, transitioning into postdoctoral work. So let's talk about that. Yeah, good question. I, I think 
I think one area of uncertainty given a changing climate is how altered precipitation regimes will influence the availability of water resources on the landscape and particularly how severe droughts will influence surface water, hydro period, and wetland habitats that amphibians require for successful reproduction. And as we've discussed, beavers and the ponds that they create really play a key role in water storage, in retaining water in these landscapes, in providing hydro periods that are long enough to support the larval development of amphibians and other critters that rely on beaver-modified habitats. So I'd say monitoring the occurrence of beaver ponds on the landscape and the trends in the availability of beaver ponds over time would really help give us a sense for the availability of breeding habitat and other resources for, for many species that inhabit the types of ecosystems that we were working in. And, um, and as for me, I, I'm still very interested in wildlife disease dynamics and how we can develop practical conservation solutions for populations that are challenged by infectious diseases in their natural habitat. And so my current research as a postdoc seeks to, to better understand the boom and bust cycles of prairie dogs in the context of sylvatic plague, and particularly what the, what the implications are of those dynamics for livestock production and wildlife conservation in grassland, rangeland ecosystems. So prairie dogs get the plague, which is, is caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis. And during plague outbreaks, um, prairie dog colonies just outright collapse. They can suffer 99% declines during these outbreaks. And then subsequently after the decline, they expand. So they have these boom and bust cycles in areas uh, with plague. And these cycles really impact the many species that depend on prairie dogs as a prey resource or as creating habitat for many associated species, as well as the ranchers who rely on grasslands for livestock production. So we hope to better understand these boom and bust cycles to help inform management practices that are aimed at stabilizing prairie dog populations to balance and maximize the resources needed for wildlife conservation with those needed for livestock production. And so I'm, I'm super excited about that project and uh, yeah, stay tuned for those results. Yeah. So in a few years, when you finish your postdoctoral work, we can have you back on Undisciplined to chat all things prairie dogs. <laughs> I would love that. I would love <laughs> that. Um, yeah, it would be my pleasure. And yeah, prairie dogs certainly are, sort of the beavers of the grassland prairie habitat. Yeah, I, I was about to ask you that because I wanted to get you saying that. <laughs> um, so good job beating me to it. So backpedal really quick. Um, I want to kind of touch on this thought about changes to water levels and kind of abundance of water on the landscape or, or how it's falling on the landscape as we're kind of staring down the barrel of a of a long drought gun um, here in the Intermountain West. And I know last summer, lots of places, including Utah, were in these levels of exceptional drought and overwhelming, you know, just dry areas. And the West is expected to continue to have these sorts of mega droughts as we move further along in the climate crisis. What would those look like for toads? I mean, is that I would imagine it kind of spells disaster as far as 
having less water availability and just overall limiting the amount of viable habitat for these organisms in these ranges. Yeah. What's forecasted is that at least in temperate regions such as, you know, the Mountain West, we are expected to have um, sort of precipitation shifting so less snow more rain and all and that precipitation maybe won't have less but coming in a shorter window shorter period of time and so that's why i think beavers are so important because they help block that and store that water um, instead of it just rushing downstream and yeah i i think it's sort of a double-edged sword with the chytrid fungus because certainly drier conditions um, will probably mean less chytrid fungus or less chytrid prevalence in the environment but it's also dry conditions aren't great for amphibians, famously. So, yeah, I think trying to keep the water we do have on the landscape, which is what beavers do really, really well, is going to be sort of a key moving forward and just the scarcity of water on the landscape. Yeah, and such an important resource for so many things in addition to toads. Absolutely. That's Dr. Gabriel Burreal. He's a postdoctoral research associate in quantitative ecology in the Colorado Natural Heritage Program at Colorado State University. His latest studies were recently published in the American Naturalist and the Journal of Animal Ecology in January and August of 2021. Gabe, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, thank you. It was my pleasure. It was so fun. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. It's been great. I appreciated getting to talk to you about all things toad and a little aside of prairie dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks so much. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 10.30 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>